0: Uh, why in the world would we start our service in that way? That's strange to do on a Sunday morning to give out biographies and have you doing jumping jacks and exercises. But I do it because we need to be reading good books, and those are good biographies that I pray encourages your heart. But more than that, um, in Ruth, chapter 1, 6 through 22, our second scene in the book of Ruth, if you'll turn there with me, chapter 1. We'll finish up chapter 1 this, this morning, but what we'll see is the exact same thing. We have a biography. We have the details of someone's life, in particular three people's lives, that the Lord preserves for us in Holy Scripture to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our walk with Him, to convict us of our failures and our, 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 our weaknesses, to encourage us by showing us strengths. God has given us this so that so that we can walk more faithfully with Him. That's why He would give us the details of these lives. And so I pray that as we study this morning, as we jump in, that you ask the Lord to do business in your heart, convict you where it needs to happen, conviction, encourage you where that needs to happen. Let's read together the Ruth chapter 1. We'll start in verse 6. It's talking about Naomi. It says, Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard uh, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food And they lifted up their voices and wept together. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I, sh- and if I should say, that, uh, say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you be therefore willing to wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let's pause right there and think about the situation these women are in. What should they do? Where should they they go? Bethlehem, think about this. Bethlehem has been Naomi's home before, but it's never been Ruth or Orpah's home. Her people are not their people. If they came with Naomi, they would just be two more mouths to feed, two more bodies to clothe, two more people to find lodging for. And Naomi has none of that, nor does she have the means of getting those things even for herself. A widow in this time had no opportunity for that. She was a beggar. So why in the world would they come with her? And and the thing that made this even harder for Naomi was the fact that these two ladies were foreigners. They would not have been welcomed in little old Bethlehem. Remember who they are. These are Moabite women. If you forgot from last week, the Moabites were the longtime enemies of God. There was enmity between God and the Moabites and between God's people, the Israelites, and the Moabites. And their very presence with Naomi would be a reminder to Naomi and to those around her of Naomi's family abandoning the promises of God and leaving the promised land. It would be a constant reminder of her sons breaking the covenant of God and going and marrying pagan women. Every time Naomi saw their foreign faces, she would be confronted with the heavy weight of God's judgment in the death of her husband and in the deaths of her sons. In many ways, these two women would complicate things. In many ways, these two women accompanying her back to Judah would simply be seen as as embarrassing intruders. No wonder Naomi thought it far better for these women and for her, right? It makes it clear in the text how it would be better for them. But, but even for her, that they simply go back to their parents' houses and live and live with their people and find new husbands. It makes sense to us, humanly speaking, why Naomi would say in verse 11, go back, go back home. If they followed Naomi, they'd be choosing a road to nowhere. They'd be choosing a path that leads to emptiness, in verse 14, you see that they make different choices. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah makes the sensible choice here, at least humanly speaking. She, she was fond of her mother-in-law. She loved her mother-in-law, evident from the kiss there, but she didn't allow her emotions to cloud her decision. She would follow her logic. She would go to, to what made sense. There's no special blessing to be found in the land of promise or at least that's the way Naomi's been living, right? Remember, Naomi and Elimelech leave the land of promise and go to Moab. So everything that, that Orpah has seen from her mother in law and father in law has. What, what special is there in, in Bethlehem that awaits me? There's no special blessing there. So for, Op- for uh, Orpah and for Ruth, let's, let's go back. And so Orpah chooses that option. Maybe she had a husband. Maybe she found a husband. Maybe she found a family in Moab. We're not sure. We're not giving those details. But the irony here, don't miss this, is that Orpah looked at her situation in life and makes the same decision, the necessary decision, using the exact same logic that Elimelech and Naomi used when they went to Moab, right? In the passage from last week. She's making decisions just like the example she saw from her father-in-law and mother-in-law. The fields in Moab looked far greener than the land of Israel. And with that simple choice, she marched off right out of the pages of the Bible. We don't don't know anything else about her. She went back, presumably, to her own gods. In her mind, she was rejecting this road to emptiness that awaited her in Bethlehem. But what she really was rejecting, what she was unknowingly rejecting, was true significance in a relationship with the true God. Isn't that how the world's wisdom works? Think about this and what we see in our culture around us every day. People try in their own human strength and own human wisdom to avoid emptiness, to find fulfillment, to find something that satisfies. But outside of God, you're really just settling for a different kind of nothingness. An eternal nothingness. Sure, you may be happy and content for a few years, but what about eternity? But then there's Ruth, right? Ruth is a nobody. Just like Orpah, she's an outsider. She's outside the covenant of grace. She's outside the family of God. She's a Moabite of all things. There's nothing kosher about Ruth. She would be, and I think she knew this, I think she knew she would be just about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. There's, there's nothing about her that was appealing to the Jews in, in Bethlehem. Conventional wisdom, and perhaps even Orpah was, were shouting at her, go the way of Orpah. There may be a husband still for you in, in, in Moab. Go the way of Orpah. There's security and there's significance. But Ruth would not let Naomi go alone into her emptiness. She clung to her, the text says. She clung to her. She was glued to her mother-in-law, and nothing or no one was going to send her away. Look at verse 15. Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's significant. Don't don't miss that. Return after your sister-in-law. In In other words, in in Matt James' English, don't be a knucklehead. Don't miss this. Don't don't make this bad choice. Go and make the choice of your sister-in-law, Orpah. Now, Naomi's a believer. Don't miss this. Naomi's a believer telling two women to go and join another religion. True or false, that's just really not good evangelism. <laughs> in fact, it's actually anti-evangelism. My God has hurt me, so good luck with your new God, right? Or, which is really your old gods, the gods of your, your people in Moab. Listen, church. Sometimes when we're hurting, I'm not trying to make light of hurt. When we're genuinely broken and hurting, sometimes our careless words can cause unbelievers To not want to have anything to do with our true God. But in a beautiful and moving reply, look at what Ruth says next. Michael's already read it for us once this morning. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, death to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Every statement that she makes here, every part of this declaration is a ratcheting up of her commitment, right? You ever been around any one-uppers? Is that like a Louisiana thing? You know what that is when I say that? Everybody knows what a one-upper is? So you, you catch a fish this big and you're telling your story about how you caught it and then whoever you're telling it to says, well, I caught one this big and they're I caught it, right? That's a one-upper, right? Everything that, they, everything that you say, they have a story to top it. Here in these two verses, Ruth is one-upping herself. Every part of this statement intensifies her level of commitment. Watch this. She's committing her life to Naomi. More than that, body, soul, for better or worse, rich or for poor, life or death. No wonder these words are used in wedding ceremonies, even though the context here is not a wedding ceremony. It's not the intention This is not a husband and wife, a bride and a groom, but it is a covenant. It is a promise. And as Ruth covenants with Naomi, she's also covenanting with Naomi's God. Don't miss that, right? This whole thing about go back and worship your gods and this confession from Ruth is a covenant to to Naomi's God. We see a hint of this when she calls God by his covenant name in verse 17. She doesn't use the generic word for God here. She uses the specific word for Israel's God, Yahweh. She's talking about Israel's God, Naomi's God. Bigger hint, if that's not a big enough hint, the the bigger hint in verse 17 is that she'll be buried with Naomi, right? In Naomi's land, in the land of Naomi's God, not the land of the gods of Moab. Now, to get this, you need to understand the culture in the ancient Near East, or at least a little bit about it. This was huge. The, The connection between land and deity was huge. And the idea here that to, to be uh, restful in the afterlife, to have a good afterlife was to have a, a proper burial. That was huge. And so when she's saying, "I'll be buried with you," it's an ultimate commitment in the ancient world to that God, to your God. Perhaps the biggest evidence here of Ruth's covenant, the promise she's making not just to Ruth, but I mean to, to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, is where Ruth says, "If I go back on my word here, to be faithful to you." then may your God, may Yahweh, strike me down. You make oaths like that? You make covenants of that magnitude in a God you believe in? She's, She's pledging, she's covenanting with Naomi's God. It's an astonishing surrender and sacrifice. Ruth laying down her life here. Well, it's pretty incredible. As you hear that statement, pretty moving. How would you expect Naomi to respond? As you hear those words, beautiful words, how would you expect the recipient of those words of that kind of devotion, how would you expect her to respond? Well, continue in the text. It says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. No, thank you. No, uh, I'm really glad for some company. That journey was going to be long and difficult. I'm glad to have you go with me. The Hebrew language here, if you read it in the Hebrew, is even more abrupt. It literally says in Hebrew, when she saw that she was determined to go, she literally stopped talking to her. Cut it off. So so think about that. Having just listened to one of the most moving, one of the most emotional speeches in the whole Bible, Naomi says nothing. She just cold, hard silence. And yet, for Naomi... For Naomi, hearing these words, these are, these are words of, of emptiness. They're words of bitterness. I mean, think about this. And especially when we compare, right, how we've utilized this, this speech, right? We put it on picture frames and we hang it on our walls in our house. Does it means something for us and our spouse? Or it's cited at, at, at wedding ceremonies or, or maybe in our wedding photo album. We have that on the front of it. We get choked up by its implications as we hear it. Where you go, I'll go not for Naomi. And maybe you interject. Maybe you say, well, Matt, uh, I, think, I think that's a bit of a harsh interpretation. I think you're, you're, you're being too hard on Naomi. Maybe you need to cut Naomi some slack. You're reading too much into this silence. Okay, well, continue with me. It doesn't get any better when she finally speaks. It's still not to Ruth. But continue with me and see what it says. Verse 19, it says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. We saw that last week. But call me Mara, bitter. means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In other words... I left everything, I left with everything, and I have returned with nothing. So wait, 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 wait. So so Naomi evaluates her situation. She looks around as she's returned to Bethlehem. She takes inventory of what she has, and she says she has nothing. So then what does that make Ruth? Less than nothing? I don't know. the The text certainly seems to imply that that's Naomi's attitude. That her estimation of Ruth at this point seems to be little more than nothing at all. It's also an interesting note if you look at this in the way this is written. The women of Bethlehem welcomed Naomi home, but they didn't even notice her companion. Watch the way the text reads. The writer of Ruth is writing a specific way to show you this. Look, Look back at the text we just read. It says, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. All of those plural. And then the women said, is this Naomi? Do you see it? Everyone in Bethlehem could see that there were two of them. Actually, the text tells us that three times. As they strolled through town that day, everyone noticed there's, there's two people. But instead of asking the obvious question, who are they? Or even, hey, Naomi, who is with you? They said and simply asked, is this Naomi? They conveniently sidestepped the awkward question of who this foreign tagalong is. Who's this person you're dragging along with you? Notice also that Naomi shows no sign of remorse or brokenness over her Moabite wanderings, right? They may have returned to the Lord's land, but they've not returned to the Lord. Uh, Ruth, I mean, Naomi has not returned to the Lord with a, a broken and contrite heart. Mara, meaning bitter, is exactly the right name for Naomi at this point. She's angry with God. She's angry for the way that her life is working out. Here's the thing. She recognizes And resents God for his power in her life. It's one thing for for folks to, to to not recognize God and hate God. Naomi, she recognizes God is sovereign. And he's dealt bitterly with me. And I resent that. There's not even a whisper of acknowledgement here that the tragedies that happened in Moab were a consequence of her and her husband's faithlessness. The prodigal daughter may be back in the father's land... But the prodigal daughter is only back because she didn't see any prospect of survival in the choice that she made. And so now that we've walked through most of this passage, we got a verse left. Let's make some application. I want to give us four ways that we apply a text like this. Four ways that a text like this is helpful. As we read through the, the biography, or at least the first part of this biography with, with Naomi and with Ruth and even with Orpah, What is the Lord teaching us? first thing is this. There is only one way that leads to life. There's only one way that leads to life. The text addresses us today because we're people just like Orpah and Ruth, right? Think about the similarities here. There's nothing kosher about us when we're born. There's nothing that would bring us merit before Christ, before God. We too are outsiders to the gospel. We're outsiders to grace, we're outsiders to the covenant community of God. By nature, the text says, we are objects of wrath. Even if we grew up in a Christian home, even if we were drugged to church every day of our life, we're still by nature sinners, objects of God's wrath. In Ephesians 2, the picture that we have there, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's the picture the Bible has of us before conversion, that you were literally a corpse You were dead spiritually. In the same way, Orpah and Ruth here, they faced a decision and so we too face a decision. Every one of us face a decision. Will we continue to seek security and significance in the world's ways as Orpah did? The thing that makes sense to us, humanly speaking. And that can look like a number of different things, by the way. Let that land on you however it will. Maybe it's family. Significance in the family that God's given me. Finding value in my career. Finding contentment and satisfaction in entertainment or recreation or health or prosperity. Whatever it is, will we continue to find satisfaction and security in that? Or will we choose the way of Ruth? And here's the thing. Orpah, her life, when she returned to Moab, it may have seemed great. She may have found Mr. Right. right. She might have had a whole passel of kids running around, loving, and It may have seemed like everything was good. We don't know. But even if it did, how sad is that reality? And how much is that the case for so many people today that it seems like life is working out okay? Like outside of Christ, outside of a relationship with God, it seems like I'm comfortable. It seems like I'm okay. It seems like things are going okay. But in the process of the Moabite option, Orpah missed out on the one thing of true value in life. A relationship with the Lord, the true God. Alternatively, we can follow Ruth's pattern and see that the gospel way, the choice of Christ brings true life, right? We see in Ruth a picture of real repentance. Think about this, right? Real repentance is that our face was toward sin and our backs were toward God, and by faith, by faith, we repented and admitted, I'm a sinner. I need someone, Christ, to die in my place. And I turn and now my, my face is toward God and my back is toward sin. That's the picture of repentance that we have. And that's exactly what we see here in Ruth. In Moab, her face was toward sin, her gods. Her back was toward the true God. And in a very literal and, and, and even geographical picture, we see a, a symbol of this idea of repentance that she turned. Now her face is headed toward the presence of God. And I think even in this covenant that she makes here, we hear that confession, that repentance taking place, and her back is toward the gods of Moab. That's the same decision that is before each and every one of us today. She's declaring herself to be bound by covenant to Naomi's God. As outsiders, we have nothing to offer God. We come to God with our emptiness, we come to God with our nothingness, and we surrender to Him. And that path leads us straight to the cross. Where we see Jesus, the one who died on our behalf, to make relationship possible. There's only one way that leads to life. It's the gospel way. Second application or truth that we see in this text. Let's be better missionaries than Naomi. I think that one's a bit obvious, but I don't want to miss it in the text. Let's be better missionaries than Naomi. Like Naomi, here's the, here's the connection like Naomi, we naturally tend to have a lack of concern for the souls of Moabites around us, right? When I say Moabites, you mean I don't know a Moabite. I mean someone outside the covenant relationship with God. We, genu- we g- generally, we, we naturally tend to have a lack of concern for them. And it appears here that Naomi had little concern for the, the spiritual condition of her daughter's-in-law, right? But perhaps she assumed, right, that, that Orpah and Ruth, they wouldn't be interested in her God, right? They were Moabites. They have their own gods. She has her God. And the idea of of, of reaching out to these ladies and striving to see them incorporated into the covenant community, it was just sort of lost on Naomi. Even when the opportunity jumped up at her and struck her in the face. I mean, like, literally they're walking back to Judah. (laughs) They're with her. It's trying to convince them not to be. Now, to be fair to Naomi... Very few people in the Old Testament, very few Israelites in the Old Testament were, were looking for opportunities to make converts of, of, of outsiders and bring them into the covenant community of God. Even though, I'm not making an excuse for them, saying it didn't happen a whole lot. Even though God told Abraham, right, that the promise to Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through him. So there should have been idea of that. And we see it happen from time to time. We see, uh, you know, Rahab and folks like that that are incorporated into the community of God. But not a lot. But here's the thing. As we cross over into the New Testament, and in light of the gospel in the New Testament, and in light of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, what excuse do we have? There isn't one. And so who are the Moabites that you see every day? Who are the Moabites that you come into contact with every day? Maybe people around you that you assume they're not going to be interested in me sharing the gospel with them. Their life, I think from their perspective, they think life is okay and they've got it figured out. They're not going to be interested. Who are those folks? Part of Naomi's problem Right. If we look at the text, part of Naomi's problem was that she wasn't living in, in very faithful uh, relationship as a faithful member in God's covenant community herself. Right. And that usually goes hand in hand. If you're not living faithfully in community with the people of God and for God, you don't usually have a whole lot of concern for others that are outside of the community of God. There's no distinct holiness about her in the text. Nothing brought out to us explicitly in the text that would lead us to think she's faithfully following the Lord. In fact, she's away in the land of Moab and disobedience. And yet, here's the thing, church. Don't miss this. This is huge in this text. Isn't it striking and encouraging to us that even at that moment when she wasn't looking out for Ruth's spiritual interests, and in fact she wasn't even looking out for God herself, nonetheless, God was able to still use her in spite of her attitude as a means to draw Ruth to himself. Do you see that? God used Naomi even in spite of gratitude, and praise God. Here's the thing praise God that His mission to rescue sinners is not limited by our fears, our flaws, our failings, our timidity. We should be better missionaries than Naomi. Number three, some of us need to say some goodbyes today. Some of us need to say some goodbyes today. Uh, Blake Shelton sang a song a long time ago called Goodbye Time. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that song or if you ever even heard it. It was back when Blake Shelton had the mullet, the long mullet, so that just kind of dates that song for you. Uh, the song is basically about breakups and uh, heartache that comes from saying goodbye. Goodbyes are hard, but spiritually speaking today, some of us need to, to have some goodbye time with, with some things in our lives. And, and here's what I mean by that. I heard another, another pastor say one time, For good to start, bad must end. For good to start, bad must end. For good to start, bad must end. And I'm not repeating myself there because I'm like a record or because I don't think you understand. Those words are simple to understand. They're often hard to enact. For good to start, bad must end. If you're in a dating relationship and... It's not working out because that person you're trying to date is not walking with the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. I wish things could change. For good to start, bad must end. I'm in a a job, and the job seems to be paying the bills, but everything about that job is crushing me. It is toxic for my spiritual well-being. For good to start, bad must end. Thinking back over our text this morning, this family should have never been in Moab. That was disobedience. Those boys, Malon and Killian should have never married pagan women. For good to start, bad must end. And for bad to end, sometimes goodbyes need to be said. If we're talking about the volatile work environment, maybe the goodbye is, hey, this place is toxic for my well-being, for my health, for my spiritual life, for my family. No job and no amount of money is worth that. I don't know what it's going to look like moving forward, but I've got to say Goodbye. Maybe if it's that abusive relationship, the combo is, hey, uh, I love Jesus and I really love you, but I can't stay in this place where I'm being abused over and over again and you continue to abuse me and things have not changed and so I'm gone. I don't know if any of those specific goodbyes apply to you, but I'm sure as the Spirit works in our hearts this morning, the Spirit is 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 demonstrating what goodbye needs to be said in your life. What thing needs to change? What thing you must leave for your relationship with the Lord? In the text, especially verses 15 through 17, there's a string of goodbyes that take place. Look at look at the text with me. Naomi tries to have goodbye time with Orpah and Ruth. We're done. You go here, I'll go here. We'll part ways. Goodbye. And Orpah says, "I love you. I'll miss you." But I agree, But Ruth says, I'm not leaving. You're not getting rid of me. I'm not leaving. And so Ruth and Naomi instead have goodbye time with Orpah. And don't miss this. They also have goodbye time with Moab. Now think about how heavy and hard that is. Moab is all that Ruth has ever known. That's where family is. That's where the gods that she worshipped her entire life are. That's where everything normal in life for Ruth was. And Ruth turns her back on Moab and says goodbye. Goodbye to the thing that's keeping me from God's presence. Let me ask you some questions this morning. What or who do you need to walk away from? What do you need to say goodbye to today that is keeping you from God? Even if it's hard. What, what bad in your life needs to end so that good can start? Now, there are countless ways that this text can be applied. And as the Lord is applying it to our hearts this morning, I'm sure across this room there are numerous things that we're thinking about. Sexual addictions, uh, habits, and things that have been formed in our lives that we need to cut off. The way we speak to others. Our attitudes, friendships that need to be severed. Places we don't need to go. I'm not sure how the Lord's applying it to you this morning. It may be in in a ton of different directions. But here, in this context, there's three very broken women. And they're going through some very hard things and saying some very hard goodbyes. And so, because it's the context in our text, let me make one very specific, specific example for us this morning. Let me speak to the, to the ladies in the room this morning. I, w- I want you to know first that I love being your pastor. It's a joy to shepherd you. Whether you have a husband or, or not that's here, it's a joy to shepherd you. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. Some of the women in this room, some of you ladies in this room can relate to the three ladies in this text in ways that are too deep and too personal to even say out loud. If you were honest this morning, you might would say, yeah, Matt, this is some of the greatest pain in my life I've experienced in my life at the hands of men that were supposed to love and to care for me. Maybe it was my dad, my grandpa, my uncle, a family friend a boyfriend, a husband. They were unkind to me. Or worse, they were complacent and indifferent towards me, and as a result, they harmed me and allowed other men to harm me. Can I first simply say that I'm sorry? I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. I'm sorry that you were hurt by a man in that way. Can I also say, secondly, that even if you've been brought through that and you've dealt with that and you've said those goodbyes which need to be said, let me encourage you this morning, if you haven't, do that. But if you've done that, if you've said those goodbyes, I'm very well aware that even today you probably still carry deep wounds and scars because of those times, even after you've said goodbye to them. Can I say as your pastor that one of our desires here at Poplar Spring is to create a culture where there is a body of men who are being discipled and raised up who are safe for you. Who you're safe around. They are safe and, and you are safe. We're going to see a man like that later in our study through this book. His name is Boaz. A little bit of a spoiler there for you. And I think Boaz serves as a case study for us of what a safe man looks like, especially a model for us as men of God for what it should look like to to be a safe man for women, especially women that are are broken and vulnerable and experiencing deep pain and need healing. We want men like that at Poplar Springs. We want men like that that you can, you can feel safe around because they're safe men. They're responsible men. They're men that are taking the, the call of God, the headship that God has given them in the home and in the church. They're taking that headship seriously with humility and care and they love you and they don't want anything from you. That's our desire. Some of you need to say goodbyes this morning to the, the people and things that are keeping you from the presence of God. Number four, number four, don't miss the hope that comes from God's presence. Don't miss the hope that comes from God's presence. Look at the last verse in the chapter. So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, they returned to Bethlehem, verse 22 says, just for context, that's at least a walk in the desert. (laughs) Maybe two, depending on their pace. She's an elderly lady. I'm guessing it was more close to two weeks. Either way, these are two single women. Now, be honest, church, this morning, if you had to walk a week this morning to get to church in the desert, how many of you would have been here? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) Our attendance would have been a little down, to say the least. And these ladies make the walk. They make the walk that the boys did not make, right? I mean, think back to what we learned, right? The two sons, Malon and Kilion, they didn't make the walk to go find godly wives in the, the country of Israel. These ladies make the walk. They're literally walking back to God's presence, to where God is. Right? Remember the Old Testament. God doesn't live in the hearts of his people here. He resides with them. He tabernacles with them in the land, in the temple and tabernacle. So literally, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, it was here. They're walking into the presence of God where they could be around the people of God and a part of the covenant community of God. But just because they're walking back into the presence of God geographically doesn't mean that Naomi's heart is ready to experience the hope that comes with God's presence. If you remember back to verse 19, right? That's where she's explaining, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because God's dealt bitterly with me. He's brought this calamity upon me. She's in no way ready to experience the presence of God. In fact, she's bitter towards God. So bitter that she wants to change her name to bitter, right? I don't know if any of you have ever been that bitter where you just want to change your name to bitter old woman, right? That, that's Naomi, But here's the the thing. Despite her brokenness and despite her bitterness, God is on the move. And we see it in verse 22. It's such a tiny hint that we may miss in the text. But if you get to verse 22, you look at the end of verse 22, it says, They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Huh? There's a barley harvest. Why is that important? Well, do you remember why they left Bethlehem in the first place ten years ago? It was famine. And now there's a barley harvest. They said their goodbyes to Moab, and yes, they're leaving everything they they knew, especially for Ruth. But there's so much more awaiting them in Bethlehem. And it's not just the harvest. It's what the harvest means, that God's presence is there, that God's returned and his blessing is on his people. And it's easy for us to see this text and see ourselves here, right? That That we miss what is awaiting us in the presence of God because we settle for so much less let me, let, me, let me tell you what C.S. Lewis, he, this is a, a popular quote, maybe you've heard it before, but, but bear with it. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's so good. This is what Lewis says about this idea of us settling for lesser things. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't understand what is the meaning of an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yeah, they had to give up what they knew in Moab. They, different from Orpah, they had to leave what was comfortable and what may seem promising. But there's so much more. There's so much more hope that awaits them in God in Bethlehem. There's no comparison. Listen to me this morning, friend. If you're in Moab, spiritually speaking, you're outside of the presence of God. You're outside of the will of God. And you're sitting there waiting, hoping that God would bless you with his presence. Let me tell you, it doesn't happen there. You don't experience the joy and the hope that comes in knowing God by, by staying in your sin, by settling for mud pies in a slum. There's so much more awaits, that awaits you in Christ. Don't let that hope pass you by. Let me bring out one more thing, and I know we're, 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 we're at time. I mean, there's, there's more evidence of this hope in this passage, but here's the thing. For this hope to come about... Naomi would have never found this sort of hope unless she got honest. And perhaps this happens because she's finally back with God's people. She's finally back with her family. She's finally able to lay her heart open and, and, and show her burdens. Can I remind you, you found family here. That the people in this room are your covenant family. You've committed to worshiping together. You've committed to being family and doing life together. That's what you found here. And watch what Naomi does when she finds family, right? When she gets back to the covenant people of God, she gets real honest. Look at verse 21 and 20 and 21. It reveals just how broken it is. She is. It reveals how much healing she needed. Now, I'm not justifying her theology here. I'm not saying what she's saying about God is right. But I am empathizing with her brokenness, right? Look at it. She says... I married a believing man. I I married a man who was supposed to be a man of God. Even his name said, "My God is King," and we were we were supposed to have kids that love the Lord, and we were supposed to have grandbabies that would that we would gather and we would worship God together. But I've not been in church in ten years, and my husband's died, and my sons have died, and I have no grandbabies. And all of those men in my life, they had no plan for me. So that when they all died, I was left with nothing. And so I came back absolutely devastated, homeless, and broke. Going back to a town where these women come up to me that I haven't seen in 10 years. And every time I go out in public, they ask, so where's your husband? He's dead. What about your sons? Aren't they taking care of you? No, they're dead too. what, What about your grandkids? We didn't have any. She's broken and she needs healing. Listen, I want you to hear from me that our heart at Poplar Spring is that it would be a safe place where you can find hope because you can be honest about your brokenness so that you can bring your brokenness here and find a healing and have a place to be restored. Can we be that church so that we're not scared off by anybody's brokenness? We're not scared off by anybody's scars and wounds and honesty, right? On the other hand, you may be here today and you're that broken person. You don't even know why you ended up coming today, but you did. Somebody drugged you or asked you to come here and not drugged you like drugs, but like brought you here. They drug you. That'd be a strange way of evangelism too. But, but maybe you're here and you're that broken person. And you would admit this morning, I, I'm not in a good place. My view of God is not right. I'm bitter towards God. I don't even know if I believe in God. Can I give you a glimpse of hope this morning? That that kind of honesty, that kind of brokenness can find hope, can find healing. And let me show you how we get there. Just like there's a barley harvest that's taking place. It's awaiting them when they get to Bethlehem. They did nothing for that harvest. God brought that. That was produced while they were on their way. Right? It's there when they get there. Right? God's working. God's on the move as they're approaching. They're not even doing that. And here's the thing. Here's the hope. Here's maybe your first glimpse of hope in a long time. Let me show you where this story ends. We're going to jump ahead. I want to connect some dots as we wrap up. Ruth and Naomi are headed back to Bethlehem at a time when there was no king in the land. Right? We saw that last week. There's no king in the land. But Ruth would meet Boaz. We'll meet him in a little while. Ruth would meet Boaz, and they'd have a son named Obed. And Obed would have a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David. And David... Because this foreign pagan woman came into the presence of God and found hope and found restoration and found a man who was safe and loved her and allowed her to heal. She has a son and he's a king. And his name is David. And more than that, this foreign woman and this man named Boaz have a king named David. And in that king's lineage comes another king and his name is Jesus. And just like the prophecies foretold, you know where he was born? Bethlehem. And because this king came, don't miss this, Naomi and Ruth are suffering because of the sins of others, the men in their lives that brought them to this place. And King Jesus, the king that would come through this king, David, who came from this pagan woman, Ruth, that king would come and he would suffer because of the sins of others, your sin and my sin, by hanging on a cross. And there he took our brokenness. Here's the hope. Here's the hope and the joy that we have in the gospel. He took our brokenness. He took our suffering. And true and real healing can happen because in him is all your brokenness. He took what you deserved and he gave you the life that he lived righteousness and wholeness and shalom, peace in every way. Give your life to this king today and find healing and hope in him. Let's pray together.